So, we've spent this day in the engagement with our experience through meditation of sitting and walking, of coming back again and again. And I'd like to take some time to reflect on really why we're doing this, what the kind of the context, what the understanding for this that this practice is founded in, what that is. Essentially what Dharma practice, it's the, this is the word we use to talk about what we're doing in this tradition, Dharma teachings and Dharma practice. It's essentially concerned with understanding for ourselves what truly contributes to well-being, to happiness, to peace, to freedom. And these are concerns I think we all recognize or areas of interest we can perhaps all resonate with. We might find that we use maybe particular words or different words, but that sense of interest in our possibility the possibility, the potential of our life. This is something that is common, that is, I think, shared amongst all beings, certainly all human beings, the wishing for the end of suffering, for peace, for truth, to understand that which can be understood and to live our life to its fullness of potential, to not be limited or constrained. And this is something which, it seems, isn't immediately apparent to us as to how to go about that. It's not like when we're born or when we're raised and educated, we're trained in what that really means. We're trained in all sorts of other things, and uh, quite intensively for many of us, through our families, through our schools, through our cultural trainings and conditionings, through study and work-related training, And for all that that has its certain value, it also seems to have quite profound limitations. So we find ourselves drawn towards, moved towards exploring the spiritual dimension of life, the spiritual potential of life. And it is truly in this realm that the potential for peace and for for a deep sense of rest for a sense of freedom is accessible, is possible for us. The Buddha is rather famous, in fact, for many different things he said, but uh, one of the things he said rather often when asked what he was doing, what he was teaching, what it was all about, because he taught for 45 years and uh, Many times people wanted to know what what he was doing. And he said, you know, I teach one thing and one thing only. Suffering, or dukkha, which was his word for unsatisfactoriness, struggle, discontent, unease, bondage. He said, I teach one thing and one thing only. Suffering and its end. And a rather 
bright and one might possibly, or some might say, smart friend of mine at uh, Centre, Sister Centre in America, I met once commented to me, he said, you know, that sounds like two things, suffering and the end of suffering. Not one thing. He kept saying, I only teach one thing, and here he is teaching two things. What's going on? And so he went on to, to reflect or to conjecture that perhaps the Buddha had started off by teaching just one thing, suffering. He just taught suffering, and then maybe not that many people were interested. Because do we come along here because we want to know more about suffering? Is that what we think you know, we're coming on a retreat for? We probably wouldn't sign up if what we thought was intensive course in suffering. Come along. No, 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 that's not what we come for. And so the Buddha, probably realising this, my friend uh, sort of reflected, he said, well, probably he thought I should describe it as I teach suffering and the end of suffering. When we hear that, we might get a sense of, oh yeah, that sounds a little bit more attractive, you know. If you put that on the brochure, I might sign up. Of course, when we arrive on a retreat, we might come with some vision of the delights that await us, the potential for bright and beautiful experiences, the sort of openings and the sense of release and relief and uh, sort of unfoldment of our experience that we've either read about in books or heard about from friends or that we remember quite distinctly from the last time we did something like this and we come along thinking ah yes the end of suffering Guy House October 2007 it's going to be there I can't wait and we turn up we sit down we walk back and forth a little and we sit down again for some time and sometimes it seems like well just a moment this feels more like the first bit Suffering feels like that piece that I wouldn't really have signed up for to come along on a retreat if I was being told, well, it's going to be kind of just sitting around, walking back and forth. And that something in that might be quite profoundly challenging to us. Now, I imagine most of you are also rather mature in all of this and realise that this is part of the journey, that this is not somehow a bad deal that you've been sold. Suffering and the end of suffering is what you thought you were buying and actually you've opened the package and there's only suffering in there and the end of suffering bit somehow hasn't been included. It's like, we want to go and ask for our money back, wouldn't we? But who would we go to? Where would we go? And so we're here as human beings in this life, in this world, on this retreat at this time. In fact, sitting in this room right now. And I imagine that the, that interest, that aspiration is very much alive in your hearts, in your lives, but certainly in just being here. That what is it that moves you most deeply, most powerfully, that draws you to engage in this that we're doing here? And it's sometimes a little remarkable that, you know, we just make some suggestions about what we think would be useful and for the most part, you do it. And we think, wow, that's quite amazing, actually. Because I know, and Leela knows, we, we've done this plenty ourselves over many retreats and many years, and we, we know that there are immense challenges to be faced. And yet, perhaps even right from the beginning, we can sense for ourselves, each of us, each of you, that there's something here. There's something that 
even just in a moment we get a, a glimmer of or a, feel a, a resonance from or attuned to the vibration of. And although we don't necessarily name it, and we certainly don't claim it as somewhere we've arrived, it, it kind of lights up a few signs or a few markers inside that say, yes, that's right, there's something here, something important. And so I think it's useful just to take a moment to, to come back to what our kind of where we're coming from. What what's the place from which we proceed into the situation that we're finding ourselves in, whether we call it a predicament and you know, we can talk about the predicament of life, of being born and facing the inevitability of death, or the predicament of having arrived at the retreat and finding that actually when I sit on one of these rather firm, though they looked quite comfortable, one of these rather firm cushions, my butt starts to hurt, or my knees start to ache, or when walking back and forth in a rather beautiful, delightful garden, in fact, I find myself absolutely bored and frustrated, or whatever might arise for us. Seeing these sort of things, coming back to what brings you here? What's this about? And there's a a chant that I really appreciate that's uh, used in the in some of the monasteries in England of the um, from the Amravati sort of tradition, which is mostly Westerners, but uh, originating in Thailand and uh, place, places where I've spent some time and much enjoyed the practice and the teachings there. And there's a, there's a chant which. If any of you have heard me sing, you'll be worried at this point in case I'm going to, but um, I'm not, so please be reassured. Um, I'm not going to chant for you. Uh, but the, I'd just like to reflect on the, the sentiment of this particular chant, which is called the, uh, the Reflections on Universal Well-Being. And the, the phrase, the words of it go, May I abide in well-being in freedom from affliction, freedom from hostility, freedom from ill will. And then, may all beings abide in well-being, in freedom from affliction, freedom from hostility, freedom from ill will and anxiety, both. May I maintain well-being in myself. Just these simple words, this as an aspiration or as an intention, for well-being in oneself, to be free from affliction, anxiety, hostility. And for others to abide in well-being, to be free from affliction, from hostility, from anxiety. This aspiration, this intention, this is really, I think, at the heart of what we're engaged in here. And it comes quite naturally, I think, and easily from a just a a feeling into what's important, what, what, what's life about, what do we care for, really. Almost everything we get involved in or engaged in is to some extent seeking to bring that about, not always effectively, but that we're seeking for well-being for ourselves and for those we care about. And when we have a... An, when our sense of caring isn't limited by our 
sort of by our views of who we're connected with and who we're not connected with, then it really includes all beings. So we wish for the well-being of all, understanding that it's actually connected and not separate from our own well-being. And this, this is really the beginning point of practice, that we, we seek to align ourselves with that, that quite natural goodness of a human heart that wishes for its own happiness, well-being, peace, or its own release from suffering, from conflict, from ill-will, anxiety, hostility, affliction. I mean, is there anyone here who wouldn't like to be released from affliction, from anxiety, from hostility? I mean, sometimes we might think that they have some useful function, and maybe they do, but I'm not sure about that, but maybe... But nonetheless, the experience can be incredibly painful. And there's a sense of naturally, oh, well, what would it be to be free of this? What would it be to abide in well-being? And in offering these reflections using that particular formulation from the chant, for me what it does, it just points to what the Buddha spoke about as the, the beginning place of practice where we seek to align ourselves with a sense of caring for, serving the welfare of others and ourselves. The Buddha spoke of the path as being founded on a sense of, of generosity, of a willingness to offer and to share what we have, whether it be our material resources, our food, our time, our, our, our ability to listen or to be present for someone else or to act in some way to help them. And to just be able to do, take, make actions in the world that contribute to others, rather than just being concerned about ourselves. This, the Buddha spoke of, is really one of the prime foundations of happiness, of well-being, generosity. And he went on to say that the, and the next piece that really supports happiness is to refrain from harming others, refrain from causing suffering to others. And so here on the retreat, we undertake the precepts to refrain from causing harm as a way of align. not because it's like some rule, set of rules that we have to follow so that we'll be good and we won't you know, get punished or so that we'll be good and we'll be um, you know, not sort of sent to hell or whatever it is we might fear or have been frightened with in terms of kind of like rules that are imposed upon us from outside sometimes with a threat of consequences, but more from a sense of an alignment with, oh yeah, this is what I seek in my life, is not to be harmed, not to be hurt, not to be misused by others. And so, of course, it makes sense then to act in that way. The Buddha's teaching is founded on understanding. That it is the way we live our life, the actions of our life that primarily configure or determine the quality of our life. And also not the quality but the nobility of our life. In the time of the Buddha, the, uh, as in fact today, there was very strong sort of traditions in, in much of India that the sort of the, essentially the class or the caste or the social group that you were born into determined whether you were noble or 
kind of middling or kind of ignoble and that this was somehow to do with how you were born and who you were born from. And he was very clear. He said, no, it's not about this at all. True nobility is born of actions, how you live your life and the degree to which you live your life born out of generosity and out of non-harming and the degree to which you live your life from wisdom, from a true understanding of the way things are. <coughs> so this, this understanding about action, the teaching of karma, which perhaps most of you will have encountered, and I'll just touch on briefly, though there's really a lot could be said about it. It's like understanding that when we act from a place of goodness, what comes back to us is something wholesome. When we act from a place of sort of contraction or tightness or disregarding others, what comes back to us is something that's actually ultimately painful. And that that's inherent in the nature of the action. Although it might seem sometimes that there's a cost to generosity or to non-selfishness or to being kind to another. We might feel like we lose out. But in terms of the Buddha's core teaching, he points out that if we align our heart with goodness... Goodness comes back to us. Or it might be that we see sometimes in ourselves or others that people get away. It seems like they get away with doing things that are harmful to others and they benefit from it. The teaching of karma recognizes that ultimately this is not so, although we can't always see the connection. And I just really want to touch on that briefly, that, that the Buddha pointed out that when we act from a place of selfishness, of greed self-centeredness, when we act from a place of, of hatred or anger or disregarding others, wishing to harm or hurt them, when we act from a place of really not understanding the way things are, we tend to experience pain and suffering as a result. When we act from a place of, of generosity, of kindness, of caring for the welfare of others and from understanding how things are, then we tend to experience well-being. We tend to experience wholesome results. And so there's this encouragement as a foundation of practice to develop generosity and kindness, to develop non-harming and a non-self-centeredness as the way of our engagement with life. And this is really part of what we build into the framework of a retreat, that we, we kind of come here, we give ourselves to this time. We refrain from causing harm and it's a you know, it's a reasonably environment reasonably easy environment in which to do that because there's not many things we're required to do that are potentially harmful to anyone or ourselves. And we start to look and see what's going on inside ourselves, being present in the meditation and the practice. So what we see, what stands out really immediately, I think, for everyone, is how much of the time we're not really present. How much of the time our life is somehow sucked into, pulled into, drawn into this, like this immense gravitational field of unconsciousness in which we find ourselves acting on impulses, reacting to experiences without really quite knowing what it is we're reacting to, what 
how it is we're reacting and why that's going on. So we kind of, this life just kind of, it's like it's getting done to us. It's sort of happening. And so often we find ourselves in places we did not choose or wish to be without really quite knowing, well, how did that happen? How did it come to be that I just had that really painful argument with someone I care for? How did it come to be that I just disregarded that person in fulfilling my own needs? And then I realised afterwards, I did that? Ouch, that hurts. And we see that this really compelling habit or pull of unconsciousness is something we need to address. If we wish to align our actions with that which brings happiness, we need to be conscious, we need to be present. Because if we're not, if we're not present, then we tend to enact unconscious habits of reactivity, unconscious habits of, of selfishness, of anger, of reactivity. And so we, we begin to practice, or we continue to practice, to deepen our practice, to develop this remarkable and inherent capacity for being awake, for being conscious of what's happening in our life, in our heart, in our body, in our mind, moment after moment. We start to tune into, to turn towards, to orient towards that capacity. And it's sort of like a training that we have to do, which we've, for most of us, not really done up so much up till now, or even if we've done quite a lot of it, we might have spent weeks or months of our life doing this training, this work. But actually, if you add it up and compare it to the total of our life, if you've been here, you know, two, three, four, five, six decades, you know, actually it's probably not that large a proportion that we actually spent really trying to cultivate, really trying to develop this capacity. And so it's not surprising that what we find is a lot of the time the mind tends to spin off gets pulled in this way and that into the past, into the future, dwelling on reactions, thoughts, images, stories. And that can be kind of painful sometimes, seeing how, how strongly we seem to be compelled by this, the force of this, this, this mind movement, this taking hold of things that arise, thoughts or feelings. And so coming back again and again and again and again. It's like learning to stabilize, to steady, to ground ourselves where we are. It's really simple. It's one of the most simple things you could ever be asked to do. Just be still and be with your breath. Or walk quietly and feel your feet. It's totally uncomplicated. But do not ever confuse that with the idea that it's easy. I suspect after even just one day, you got that pretty clear already. It's not easy. But we can do it. We can do it. And even after one day, I imagine you already start to sense that there's a, a beginning of a settling process, of a settling in, of an arriving, of a more and more being able to land in your experience and seeing more clearly how one gets pulled out or that one gets pulled out of it 
into reactivity, into habitual mental proliferations. And it's useful to notice that although everything around us that might be enjoyable and attractive or it might be difficult or unpleasant, it might be neutral and not particularly of significance, all the experiences around us, when we kind of get involved in doing something with them, chasing them or trying to get rid of them, it gives us a sense of meaning and purpose that's sometimes lacking when we simply are present. Like the past, we have this whole sense of who I am in the past, who I was, and it relates to who I will be in the future. Or when we're thinking about the future, there's this whole image of ourselves that's linked in with it. And yet when we're simply present with just a breath, it's like there's not much we can take hold of there. It's kind of, in some ways, a little less secure. Although ultimately we can begin to see it's much more peaceful. And it offers a a different quality of security. Not a security of knowing who we are or what is happening, but a security of beginning to understand and trust that we can meet our experience, we can connect with our experience moment by moment. And in that meeting, in that connection, something profound is possible. Something transformative begins to show itself, begins to unfold, inevitably, unstoppably. And it's not that we have to do anything to make that happen. All we need to do is allow ourselves to really begin to land to really arrive, to deeply inhabit and inhabit consciously our experience, moment after moment. It can seem like we're at the mercy of so many things, so much stimulus, thoughts and feelings and images and memories and hopes and fears and excitement and anticipation and all of that can sometimes seem like we're overwhelmed by these things. And the breath is just like this kind of vague, tenuous experience somewhere that we're supposed to get hold of. Because it's kind of quiet, it's kind of gentle, it's not kind of waving a big flag saying, hey, look at me! And so much of else that goes on seems to have that effect. But just setting the intention, just coming back, just coming back, to see that the mind begins to refine, it becomes more subtle. And in that refining, in that becoming more subtle, we're more able to attune to the breath, to settle into the experience of this moment, which isn't dependent on being with the breath, just to be really clear about that. It's to do with knowing where we are, opening to that experience that we're kind of collected, we're kind of gathered in the midst of this moment, in the felt apprehension of it directly. And that in that we're open to it, we're willing to receive it. We're not resisting it, we're not coming to it as we often can with a sense of, it doesn't quite fit, it's not supposed to be like this. It's supposed to be somehow different that would be more comfortable or preferable or ideal for me. And so often we relate to experience or to the world, we think, it's not quite right. You know, the world can't be different than it is. And sometimes we think, no, there's something wrong with the world, I'm in the wrong, you know, born on the wrong planet, 
Again, you know, what do I do? Here am I, stuck in the wrong place, wrong meditation retreat, wrong room, wrong place in the hall. It would be much better if I was over there, but someone else is there, so I had to sit here. We can always kind of get into these things about how it's not quite the way it should be. Or we get into this thing about how I, me, well, I should be different. Maybe if I was, you know, wasn't so distracted, then things would be okay. Or maybe if I'd spent more time meditating, then this would be less uncomfortable or seem like it was going somewhere. It's really easy to project judgment or blame out onto others or onto the world or onto ourselves and think that somehow if things or others or me was different than it is, then it would be okay. Then it would be kind of smooth. Then there'd be no obstacles. But that's really not what's needed. That's not what makes the difference. We can get quite worked up at times with the fact that things aren't the way we want them to be, that things seem to be in the way. I don't know if that's happened for you. You know, you're doing walking meditation and someone walks in front of your path. Does that happen to you? It's kind of like, you know, there's only 20, 30, 40 people here at Guy House right now and there's all that space over there and then they walk in front of you. It's like, get distracted or we thought, what are they doing? Don't they know I'm being mindful? Or someone makes some noise in the meditation hall. You know, they're changing their posture or they're coughing. And it's like, my meditation was so good and now I'm disrupted. I've been, you know, messed up. My enlightenment is, you know, lost as a result of this. It can be all this way in which it's like something's in my way, something's not right. And it's that view, actually, that needs to be attended to that needs to be seen. There's a, uh, a uh, I guess, an event that happened that I, I find rather fascinating. I uh, understand it to have actually taken place some years ago, and uh, this that I have that I was given by a friend is a transcript of a radio conversation between a U.S. naval ship and the Canadian authorities off the coast of Newfoundland that took place in October 1995. And I think it has a lot to say about this experience of kind of encountering our life in that way. It starts off with a communication from the American ship that says, please divert your course 15 degrees the north to avoid a collision. And the Canadians respond, recommend you divert your course 15 degrees to the south to avoid a collision. Americans, this is the captain of a U.S. Navy ship. I say again, divert your course. And you kind of get the sense of a sort of, you know, sort of squaring up for, you know, it's a Navy ship, sort of, the way we kind of fight with our experience. The Canadians respond, no, I say again, you divert your course. And the Americans respond, and this is in capital letters, so I guess it's like shouting, it says... This is the aircraft carrier USS Lincoln, the second largest ship in the United States Atlantic Fleet. We are accompanied by three destroyers, three cruisers, and numerous support vessels. I demand that you change your course 15 degrees north, that's 15 degrees north, or countermeasures will be undertaken to ensure the safety of this ship. The Canadians. This is a lighthouse. Your call. 
And it's kind of amusing to imagine the reaction on the part of the uh, captain of the ship when they realise that they're trying to ask a large piece of rock to get out of their way. And yet, uh, isn't it also amusing because we can recognise ourselves how so often we struggle with experience. We struggle with the way things are. We want things to be different. And we somehow imagine that if things would be different, we could just cruise on to our destination. Whether it was somebody else or something else or some part of ourself that we think is the thing that has to get somehow out of the way. The change of orientation that we're invited to bring to our life through meditation is to begin to see that we can use each moment and every experience as an opportunity for exploring, for understanding, for transforming life. Not by having to transform the experience, but by transforming the way in which we see it, the way in which we meet it. What we bring to it, ultimately, is what determines or makes the difference. What we bring to it. And so when difficult experience arises, to see if we can, rather than imagine something's going wrong here, like my mind's all over the place, why did I get this mind? It keeps running off thinking about, you know, chocolate cake and television and, you know, what my friends are doing on the weekend. Or it keeps going back to things that happened in the past that were painful or difficult or or maybe things that were really nice that would like to be happening but are no longer in my life still. Seeing our mind as this, oh, okay, so this is something to be understood rather than to be blamed for what's going on. Seeing how the mind tends to move away. But if we remember, and when we remember, it comes back. It's a little bit like we were training a puppy to learn to heal, to follow behind us. If every time the puppy runs off, we throw sticks at it and stones and yell at it and say, bad dog, what's going to happen? Do you think the puppy's going to want to walk quietly behind us, along with us? Nature of puppy, it gets interested in, you know, following a butterfly or sniffing a flower or, you know, decorating a tree. That's what puppies do. But if every time you see where it's gone, you say, oh, look, that's where you are. Come back here puppy pretty soon gets oh, that's a kind of friendly place to hang out that character's quite friendly and kind maybe I'll follow them around and that's how you train a puppy to heal, to follow if you don't train it to do that it's in trouble a puppy isn't going to be a happy creature in our world if it can't follow some simple instructions our mind is much the same except probably it didn't get trained that way if anything it might have had a few sticks thrown at it um, when it didn't do what we wanted to. But to see how when the mind goes out, sometimes it's fun, it's delightful, you know, sniffing butterflies. Other times it looks like it's going to run across the road in front of a double-decker bus. You know, in terms of our mind, we get sucked into these things that just turn out to be really bad news sometimes, really painful. And it feels like there's no choice. There's this process of mind training, of heart training, 
whereby we bring ourselves back again and again. And it's like, oh, that's where my mind is. Look at that. Amazing. How did it get there? Well, actually, it doesn't matter how it got there. Just look where it is. Huh. In the moment you've noticed that your mind is somewhere else, you're no longer lost. You're already back. And there's no need to worry about why or how long or what for that whole scenario unfolded. It's just like, oh, that's what happened. Just come back. Just reconnect. To know and sense and feel what it is to be where you are in that moment. Come back to the breath. Come back to the step. Come back to knowing that you're sitting at the lunch table with a plate of food in front of you, not actually in the supermarket trying to find something that you need and not being able to, which is where the mind had been in that moment, having noticed some food that you perhaps like and starting to sort of work out whether you can make the recipe and then the mind just spins off into down the supermarket trying to find that particular ingredient that they used. No, boom, back here, back here. And so there's a natural way in which the mind starts to settle, the energy and capacity of heart and mind collects and gathers and it's like a it's like a light we could say if you have a torch and you just kind of randomly shake it around in a dark room hoping to see where you're going and not bump into things you're not really going to be able to move through that space with any ease or without bumping into things and having collisions but mind untrained left to itself is like that it just kind of gets pulled here and there back and forth like a puppy that's never learnt to heal. And so we steady it, we calm it, we gather it. And as we do so, it starts to brighten. It starts to, in the, it's like gathering. Rather than thinking of concentration, which is a sometimes useful word, but when we think about concentrating it, it often gives the sense or the feeling of like, like some really quite tight or dry sort of forcing the mind into a very particular point, like on the breath, don't move. Oh no, damn, it's moved again. You know, it's like that kind of, and it's sort of like, you know, tomato concentrate. It's like you take all the moisture out and it kind of becomes thick and stodgy, but at least it's sort of not taking up as much space. We're not trying to make tomato concentrate with our minds. It's not that kind of concentration where we take out the moisture. It's much more like providing a container, like a I kind of have the sense of like a stone basin in which the drops of rain could gather and begin to pull. And as they do, as they begin to pull, as they begin to gather, there's a, a certain coherence or cohesion, a certain body in terms of the image. It's like a body of water that could reflect, that could see clearly, that could reflect what's happening. As we become more present, as we start to abide more and more in conscious contact with our experience, we begin to see what's actually true. We begin to see that so much of the time it's like we're chasing after something. We're trying to get somewhere. We're trying to produce something or be someone other than what is or other than as we are. Trying to become better or good. Imagine that somehow we're not good enough or that we're bad because perhaps someone told us that in our life and somewhere we believed them. We're trying to change our experience so it'll be okay because we've been told that mostly experience isn't okay and you've got to fix it or control it or make it according to the way you think it should be. But you can't make it the way you think it should be. Just like the ship can't get the lighthouse to move out of the way. 
It's we that need to adjust to how it is. It's we that need to allow the space for ourselves to be as we are. And in that we can begin to rest. The turbulence of that struggle, that drivenness, seeking, trying to get somewhere, can begin to soften, can begin to... It's like the waves on the water of our life can begin to settle. And in the stillness we can begin to feel its depth. Because that drivenness, that busyness, that rushing, that frantic activity of mind that we can be so caught in, that's kind of like the surface. And in trying to calm that down by pushing it or controlling it, we just stir up more waves. It's more like just allowing it to be, allowing it to settle, allowing ourselves to arrive more and more fully into our life, (coughs) into this moment, as we are, as it is. And as we settle into that, there's that sense of allowing, of receiving experience as it is. And and looking to see, well, what's this? What's happening here? This capacity of, of understanding that we have that is the basis of wisdom that through connecting with our actual experience we start to see what makes a difference. We start to realize that umpteen decades of chasing one thing or running away from the other never allowed us to come to rest. Because half the time we can't get away from the things we're trying to avoid. Or we can't get hold of the things we wish to grasp. And we're frustrated or angry about that. And the other half of the time we get the thing that we want, but actually we find we just start wanting something else. It wasn't really as good or as satisfying as we'd hoped. That satisfaction doesn't last. Or we manage to avoid the thing that was scary or threatening to us. And something else starts to scare us instead. Because the underlying tendency towards chasing after or running away from is not yet understood and resolved. The way we understand it, the way we resolve it, is actually seeing it, allowing ourselves to feel what it's like to be in that place without having to believe we have to enact it again and again and again. Because we can start to sense that there's something in this quality of, of the seeing, of the knowing, of the being present with, that allows the energy that's in it, energy that's in that momentum, that compulsion, that affliction, to start to soften, to start to settle out. That entering into the path of wisdom, we start to see that actually... It's the quality of our connection with the experience. It's the quality of presence in which we meet the experience. It's the openness of our heart in that meeting. It's the willingness to trust in the way it is. It's these things that actually mostly determine, or most profoundly determine, the sense of well-being in that moment. And these things are not being done to us. These things are possible to connect with and bring forth from within ourselves. We can't do that. We can't force that to happen as an act of will. 
but by inclining towards it, orienting towards it, again and again coming back to that potentiality, that possibility, and seeing its effect. Noticing what it's like. Just a moment where we just <sighs> land. And we realize, huh, our life could be like this. It's often the case when we ring the bell at the end of the sitting. And suddenly it's not like we have to endure or survive or get there. We're not trying to do the meditation anymore. It's just like, ah, but we're still present. Just for a moment before we start thinking about lunch or getting our shoes or whatever we're going to do next. Just for a moment, often there's a sense of just, ah, we rest. What would it be like to rest in that way? Irrespective of whether we're sitting or walking or the bell has rung or is not. Because this is possible for us. To really abide in your life is to receive your life and to transform it. To see it clearly is to understand that the that which we seek for is not to be manufactured or produced by our efforts. But to be discovered, to be revealed by simply putting down all the habitual activity which we are so often entangled in and relying upon to entertain ourselves, to distract ourselves, or to give us a sense of who we are, that although it is vaguely reassuring, never really answers the question because ultimately it's not who we are. It's simply the unfoldment of experience. And in this, the depth of satisfaction that we seek, the happiness we yearn for, the release from suffering, is to be found not in the experience, <coughs> but with the experience. Not from the experience, but from the quality of presence in which that experience is received, is held, is known, and is understood. And this... This beingness, this presence, this awakened aliveness is not different than the simple capacity of consciousness that we connect with moment by moment in our remembering, in our engaging, in our receiving, in our non-resistance to life, our welcoming of life, and our willingness to give ourselves wholeheartedly to this, this moment, this endeavor, this life that is just here, just now, and nowhere else, but is here, is now, and never absent. And so this journey of 
awakening, of discovery, of spiritual practice, founded in goodness and caring and sensitivity to the welfare of ourselves and others, developed through the training and the stabilizing of heart and mind, connecting with the present, and then unfolding into the the flowering of wisdom, understanding what is most true. And in that understanding, coming to realize, to know for ourselves what the Buddha, what the wise teachers, women and men of all generations have come to discover and understand. And for this we practice, for this we engage. So let's just sit quietly for a moment or two together. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.